Good morning. Let me add my welcome to the welcome that you've already received from our provost, Dr. Matthews, and express uh, my great appreciation for seeing each of you and all of you. Uh, as he mentioned, we are actually greeting uh, students and faculty and staff members uh, throughout our campuses and sites. Uh, we, this is a momentous year for us. This is the first year in our history we have crossed the number of over 1,800 students. We're the largest in our history is this fall, and you made that happen, so praise the Lord for that. Uh, we are greeting students today on, on live stream from, of course, our campus in Orlando, as well as here, but also in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and in Memphis, Tennessee, and our newest site in Colorado Springs. And we're so thankful and great, grateful for all of those students. And together we had uh, 512 new students, another record for us. And so we're thankful for all the new students who have come to join us uh, today and for this sacred journey that lies ahead of us. Let us pray. Lord, open our hearts now to receive the message that you've given me to give to the students and the faculty and staff gathered today. In Jesus' name, amen. The year 2020 will go down as one of the most momentous years in a generation. Some years are shy and unassuming and easily blend into the others, don't they? But some years stand out as defining markers, which challenge our assumptions, calling us afresh to lean into what God might be saying to us, and again, summoning us afresh to new discoveries about what it means to be the people of God at this time. Now, this year will not be easily forgotten, uh, nor should it be. This is not a year for steady as she goes. This is not a year for you know, playing things safe or business as usual. This is a year which calls us to remember afresh what it means to be God's people for our time. This year we have seen almost like oh, the hurricane force, three events which have converged upon 2020. The first is the COVID-19 pandemic, which has brought a major disruption to our shared community life together. Second, the global economic downturn, which has unleashed so much uh, distress and pain and suffering throughout our world. And thirdly, the stark reminder of the festering wound of racial injustices in our country, which has been represented to us in many tragic and painful ways in recent days. The question before us at Asbury Seminary is this. What does it mean to be a spirit-filled, sanctified man or woman called to spread scriptural holiness throughout the world? Or to put it more bluntly, what does it mean for our mission statement at our time, in this time, in, in our generation, in the midst of the challenges of racial disparity, economic instability, and a global pandemic. Well, as your president, I submit to you on this solemn occasion of our 97th opening convocation of Asbury Theological Seminary that this, these disruptions, the 2020 disruptions, should serve as nothing less than a wake-up call to the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
This text today, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That verse, that early, probably one of the earliest fragments of one of the earliest Christian hymns ever written in our movement. That fragment, you might hear echoes of that text from Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. <coughs> or perhaps you hear Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live, your bodies shall rise, you who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Put those together and you get something of this amazing early Christian hymn. And this fragment of hymn is found actually in some of the earliest Eucharistic liturgies. Some of the church fathers concluded that this verse should be viewed through a spiritual lens. You were dead in your trespass and sins, but through the gospel you've been raised up to newness of life. Other church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, for example, wrote that this was really about being awakened from heresy. He said, we have been awakened from the sleep of darkness, and he raises up those who have wandered in error. Archelaus said this text was really the transition between the law of Moses and the, and the light of the gospel. He says Moses was the guardian of the law until the sun came up in Jesus Christ. Hippolytus saw this as referring, of course, to that final day of Christ on the day of general resurrection. Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, Christ will shine on you, is a call of that general resurrection where we will literally be raised from the dead on that final day. Praise God. Like all good hymns, I'm sure it has many facets of meaning. But somehow they all seem to come together in kind of a harmonic resonance in the year 2020. I believe, in fact, this, this very verse could indeed be the call for the church of Jesus Christ to awaken from our spiritual slumber, to realize afresh that he is Lord over death itself, quite literally. A call to rediscover the power of the true gospel for our time. The call to be a spirit-filled church. The call to be a supernaturally empowered church. I think it goes out saying that the wider culture has lost its way, desperate for a word of hope in this time of crisis. But that's not news to anybody in this room. The real, I think, greater problem is that the church is asleep. The church must awaken to the opportunity which is before us in this hour. Brothers and sisters, the crisis of global pandemic, social unrest due to painful racial disparities and economic fragility is nothing less than a call to a great awakening. This is our moment. This is our summons. This is our wake-up call. I believe this text actually calls for three paradigm shifts for the Church of Jesus Christ. And let's listen to these three this morning. Paradigm shift number one. Moving from an insulated, privatized church to a church as a public missional agent of healing. Now listen to that again. Moving from an insulated, privatized church to a church as a public missional agent of healing. Mirsov Volf is a Croatian theologian who now serves as professor of theology at Yale University. And formerly where I first met him at the Evangelical 
Theological Seminary in Osijek, Croatia. His award-winning book, Exclusion and Embrace, uh, captures the violence of three cities. This was a 2002 Graymire Award, so this goes back in time a bit, but think about what he captured in that book in 2002. First, Sarajevo in the grip of the Bosnian War. This is the birthplace of the phrase ethnic cleansing. Two, the Los Angeles race riots in the wake of the beating of Rodney King. And thirdly, the rise of modern-day neo-Nazis on the streets of Berlin. Now, none of those conflicts are particularly in the headlines today, but in another way, they're all in the headlines today, aren't they? You could easily substitute our own day for that day. And Wolf argues that today's cultural conflicts cannot be understood unless we first understand the impact of postmodernity on modern thought. He points out that postmodernity embraces an autonomous self, which turns away from the values and identities which connect us and instead focus on social arrangements rather than people as social agents. Identity politics becomes a new form of tribalism, spawning endless conflicts and power struggles. Wolf argues that we tend to shift moral responsibility away from ourselves as moral agents, instead shift blame onto socially constructed and managed social agencies that allow us to escape from any moral responsibility. This is where Wolf introduces his famous double exclusion. The book is entitled Exclusion and Embrace. He writes, listen to this, forgiveness flounders because I exclude myself from the, I'm sorry, I exclude the enemy from the company of humans, even as I exclude myself from the company of sinners. But he writes, no one can be in the presence of the God of the crucified one for long without overcoming this double exclusion, without transposing the enemy from the sphere of the monstrous into the sphere of shared humanity, and herself or himself from the sphere of proud innocence to the sphere of common sinfulness. End quote. See, this is why the cross is so central to our work as a community of faithful Christians. Christ does not exclude himself from the company of sinners. He stands in it from his baptism, receiving baptism in the Jordan, all the way to the cross where he bears our sins. And yet Christ embraces a world in the face of their own rejection of him. While we are yet sinners, Christ died for us, Paul declares. This is Christ shedding the double, double exclusion. This is not cheap grace, a cheap I forgive you. This is not just a justice that is separated from reconciliation, which actually bears the pain and suffering of others. The contemporary church has insulated itself from the pain and suffering, which is the heart of the gospel. And we need a wake-up call. We've embraced, if I might quote our own professor, Greg Okeson, in his book, A Public Missiology. We've embraced a thin reading of scripture, and we're left with a thin Christian narrative, which, and I quote Dr. Okeson, where we become easy prey. The Christian narrative can become easy prey to the dominant narrative of this, narrative of this world, such as nationalism, tribalism, global capitalism, and progress, end quote. I had the privilege of being in former Yugoslavia 
on many occasions in the 90s during the entire breakup. I've been to Croatia, I've been to Bosnia, I've been to Serbia, I've been to Kosovo, and I've been to Slovenia. And the wars brought the entire economy to a halt with little more than just street bartering. Millions had had their homes bombed out all over the land. Millions more were left as refugees because of their ethnic background. And I met dozens of men and women who sat where you sit today, preparing for ministry in the face of that disaster. I know, for example, the first time I ever uh, went to the Mostar Bible College in Bosnia, we met in a bombed out building, completely bombed out. And yet the students had expectation and hope in their eyes that they would be missional agents of healing. They had, they had no luxury of being insulated from a country in pain because everybody was thrown into it. And we also must recognize we cannot escape the world's mess. We must wade into it. We must embrace it with the transforming power of the gospel and be agents of healing. Paradigm shift number two. We must move from being a cultural echo chamber to a, the rediscovery of the distinct voice of the church for our time. We come now to the second storm out of racial unrest in our country. The tragic death of 46-year-old George Floyd on the streets of Minneapolis on May 24th with his last words, I can't breathe, on his lips, has highlighted afresh a long-standing wound in our country, and it has its reflections around the world as well, which cannot be ignored. There's a deepening despair which has brought our, particular our black citizens in 57 years from the hopeful phrase of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1963, I have a dream, to the desperate plea, I can't breathe. Willie James Jennings, the former professor from Duke Divinity School, now Yale, has called this wound a diseased social imagination. Its roots absolutely are in our hearts. But while sin is personal, it is never satisfied to stay there, is it? It longs to infect all of our institutions and social arrangements. Sin is personal and systemic. It's private and public. It's internal and societal. It's individual and corporate. There's nothing wrong with our participating in peaceful protest to demand attention to the deep wound in our society. We share many of the same frustrations and anger which has erupted in our streets. But our message is not one of promoting the destruction of communities, but the rebuilding of communities on the foundation of true reconciliation. This is why we must reclaim our Christian voice and represent to the world the possibilities of transformation the world can imagine. My 2019 convocation address last year focused on the work of Alasdair McIntyre, who rightly argued that the society had lost the moral foundation to produce transformation, and we're only left what he calls emotivism, where we just shout at one another. It's the loss of the Christian worldview. Hear this, it's the loss of the Christian worldview, which is the very gap between the hopefulness of the pastor, Martin Luther King Jr., I have a dream, 
and the desperate plea of dying George Floyd, I can't breathe. It's a loss which the culture cannot name. However, we have a message which, for, which is true for any nation, including our nation, which seeks to honestly face up to a diseased social imagination. I want to give four brief examples. First, as Dr. Arnold beautifully prayed, we affirm in the scriptures that all persons are created in the image of God. Amen? Amen. All persons have dignity because of that. This is one of the great foundation stones of the Christian message. But we also affirm that the entire human race, as was also prayed, is captured under the bondage of sin. We are all in the community of sinners. Unless we're in Christ, we are captured in that. It makes forgiveness possible because it gives us the context of grace. We are joyful recipients of grace. Therefore, we can freely offer it to the world. As Wesleyans, thirdly, we believe in the power of Christ to transform our hearts and redirect them toward perfect love. I love the fact that we don't simply have to believe in alien righteousness as to say something that's only forensically true about you when it can actually be experientially true about you. That's the heart of the Wesleyan message. God actually is transforming you. He doesn't just simply declare you holy. He wants to make you holy. And that addresses all of our diseases, including not just racism, but everything that has caused that dividing wall of hostility which has now been torn down. Our theology has huge implications which are private and public, internal and societal, individual and corporate. We also believe in that great vision of Revelation 7-9 where John sees men and women from every tribe, every language, every tongue before the throne. That is the greatest picture of unity in diversity that the world will ever imagine is already being encompassed in the church. We are the outpost of that future vision already in the present age. This is the great point. Now granted, I must admit, we have to be honest. We've not always been faithful to that vision. We must be a people of metanoia, of, of repentance. Reminded of what Albert Tate said, the African-American lead pastor of the multiracial fellowship church, Monrovia, where he said that the church of Jesus Christ has sometimes been far better at envisioning a multiracial multitude standing before the throne than we have with the race of the world sitting around the table in the here and now. We definitely have a lot of unfinished business as a Christian community. We're thankful for all the great and bold things that Christians have done through the centuries. We also recognize that your generation, my generation, we have much work to be done. The third and final paradigm shift is moving from a, being a religious service provider to an agent of awakening. Now I want to speak particularly to the 500 plus new students, many of whom of course are joining us by live stream as well. But you did not get called by God to be simply a religious service provider, did you? You were called by God to be an agent of transformation. This is why you're here. This third storm of the COVID-19 pandemic has disrupted so many of the key features of Christian and human identity of gathered community fellowship. And our hearts go out to all those who have suffered and been in hospitals and many, of course, tragically have lost their life. On the one hand, we want to fully understand and embrace that the wearing of masks and the keeping of social distance 
is an expression of compassion one for another, in particular our most vulnerable citizens who are in, the, in our healthcare workers who are in the front uh, stage of this pandemic. So let me just repeat so everybody hears me. I affirm and I resonate with that message. My mask is right there on the chair. I'll put it on in a minute again. But it is not the only message that Christians have to bear in this hour. Safety is a very good value. But for the Christian, indeed any healthy society, it is not the ultimate value. A culture which takes down diving boards from swimming pools because someone might get hurt is also a culture which will never send a man or woman to the moon. A culture which shines ultraviolet light on the bedsheets of five-star hotels to show us what's lurking there is a culture which has lost touch with the real sufferings of the world. The church must get its hands dirty in this world. Millions on the world in their own land are struggling against what African theologian Akinde Akinade has called the multi-headed hydra of poverty, illiteracy, ethnic tensions, colonialism, dictatorship, illness, disenfranchisement, and suffering. We must face that world. We can't hide from it. As a Christian, if my wife and I, Julie, who's here, if we were to accept the culture's prevailing hierarchy of values, we would never have sent our daughter as a missionary among the Alagua in central Tanzania. She lives a place with no running water, no electricity, five hours from any clinic, but even if you were to take the five hours, there'd be no attending staff there and only meager medical supplies. It's just too risky to bring the gospel to an unreached people's group. As Christians, we must understand that our culture is driven to make safety the highest good precisely because of the loss of the eschaton and any eternal hope beyond the grave. If all you have in this life and the farthest extent of your vision is 90 years, then it's an expression of perfect cultural logic to end up where we are as a society today. But our vision goes beyond the grave. Death has been defeated. We are an eschatological people. The early church understood, even in the face of immense dangers, they stood, stood in this sacred space called Jesus Christ. That was the great Athanasius' insight that the Aristotelian view of space was space was a container, and all of us were in this container called space. And Athanasius said, no, it's not true. Space for us is different. Space is Jesus Christ. He is the one that bridges the eminence of God and the transcendence of man, of humanity. We now walk in that sacred space called Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ saw the leper, the most infectious disease of his day, and he reached out and he touched the leper because something new, altogether new is at work. COVID-19 is a call for us to reclaim the power of the gospel, not just the doctrines of it, of course that, but the spirit of it. They have people of courage, people that face up to a world in pain, people that face up to a world in danger. Fear is not a Christian virtue. Courage is a Christian virtue. We wear our masks, we keep our social distance, but we still are people of joy. Because joy is our 
message against a world in despair. It's the greatest message we have. It's a, because God in, in Jesus Christ, in that space called Jesus Christ, there is no death, there's no disease, there's no poverty, there's no racism. It's only new creation. And we get to occupy that space as his ambassadors in the world. Now what does this mean for us as we think about the church that you'll be going to serve? I think it means COVID-19, frankly, is also a strangely wrapped gift of disruptive grace for us. I love that about how God uses things like this for his greater glory and our good. COVID-19 might help us remember and move from facility-based ministry models to smaller community-based models. For too long, we've nurtured the idea that Christians should, and it happens all over the country and the world, we commute out of our communities and go to church somewhere else. And we become increasingly disconnected from the communities we actually live in. We must again be reasserted as agents of healing in the communities that we actually live in. Secondly, COVID-19 is a gift from God. It's broken us free from Sunday-based ministry to all-week ministry. You know, for too long we thought Christianity was about Sunday morning activities. But now we're called to walk through the whole week as the people of God, embodied in our communities as the people of God. COVID-19, I think, also should have a transformative experience on what it means to do our work in theological education. We too must humbly accept the fact for so long we have embraced the university model where we have been separated too separate from the church that we serve and the communities that are in pain that we serve in. Part of why I love Asbury Global, which we're launching this year, is the, that it brings together a hybrid learning model with our online education and our contextual sites which meet in local churches. And it doesn't, of course, undermine our amazing, beautiful residential model, which also reflects the, the, the Trinity and the, the inherent relationships of the triune God. But it also reminds all of us that we are here to serve the church of Jesus Christ. And this is our wake-up call. I want to close with a story from my own family life. My sixth great-grandfather, yes, that's great, 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 great. My sixth great-grandfather was William Tennant. He was born in Scotland in 1673. That's why I love when we balance our budget. See, I've got Scottish roots. He goes to the University of Edinburgh, and later he migrated to uh, what they called at that time the New World in the year 1718. In 1727, he founded a theological college known as the Log College, which provided pastors for the First Great Awakening located in Pennsylvania. So during the 1730s and 40s, uh, during the Great Awakening, uh, this log college produced over 60 pastors for the Great Awakening. Eventually, this log college was renamed the College of New Jersey, and eventually grew and grew and grew, and eventually decided to become a university. And they decided to name it after the first town that would give them, every merchant would give them $20 to get started in their town. And so Princeton... Uh, New Jersey offered that, and it became Princeton University. Well, William's ten, William Tennant's children all became known at the time of what was called the New Lights. And you haven't ever heard of the New Lights, but you'll recognize it because it's no different today. The New Lights, as opposed to the Old Lights, these were Great Awakening preachers, and they were denouncing 
religious formalism, promoting revival, conversion experiences, direct experience with God, and pietism. These are themes, of course, very familiar to John Wesley and his followers, who were also part of the Great Awakening. William Tennant, Jr., my fifth great-grandfather, had just graduated from the Log College, and he was preparing for his ordination exams. Now, in those days, it was a deeply classical training, and they, uh, he was actually conversing in Latin with his theological tutor, when suddenly, with a big heave and cry, he collapsed to the ground and fell dead at only 26 years old. I'm sure we have some 26-year-olds here today. Think about the tragedy of that for his family and for him. 18th century, there are, of course, uh, only four ways to determine if someone was dead. There was your pulse. He took their pulse, but he had no pulse. They had what was called the death power, a certain look of your face, lose its color. He had death power, death due when you drop below you die, of course, you go below 9.6 and you begin to perspire. And then, of course, rigor mortis. And so he experienced all of these. He was pronounced dead by a doctor, and they called for the funeral the very next day. Well, later on that same day, before the funeral, another doctor uh, came and uh, wanted to examine him and thought he felt a slight warmth under his armpit. They would, they would put their hand in ice water and put it out and put it under your armpit to see if they felt any warmth. There's no EKGs or EEGs in those days. And uh, he called another doctor in who also examined and said, no, he's dead. So the next day was the day of the funeral. They called for the funeral. Of course, everyone was gathering and weeping, again, 26 years old. And uh, they were about to start the funeral service. In those days, they gathered in the home with the casket. He's already in the casket. They're uh, about to close the casket and go out for the burial. They're like within 15 minutes of closing the casket. And a doctor said to William Sr., his father, and Gilbert, his brother, uh, could I examine him one more time? Because there was another test, which was uh, to shine a bright light into someone's eyes, and it would see if their eyes would dilate. So the father and the brother were against it, but he insisted, so they motioned over to the casket, asked people to step back, and he shined the light into the casket, into the, held open the eyelid, of William Tennant Jr. and the eyes did not dilate. Before he came back though he saw what he thought was a slight shimmer in the eye and then to his amazement the whole body shuddered a little bit and then went, went dead again. Well dead people don't shudder. <laughs> so they immediately called for him to be pulled out of the casket. This is within 15 minutes of closing it and they wrapped his body in, in warm cloths, and gradually, over the next several days, he came to. He could not speak. Uh, it took two years to get his language back, though our family's a little proud that he did get his Latin back before his English. <laughs> and it shows you what he was doing when he, when he had a stroke. Um, and he went on, this is of course the important point for me, is he went on to get married and have children, and had 49 years of great ministry in the church. But I am alive today because William Tennant Jr. woke up. Hallelujah! If they'd closed that casket, you'd be hearing some message from somebody else today. 
because I never would have existed. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The culture has declared the church dead, has already called for the funeral service, but the God of resurrection is still at work. Hallelujah. The culture is ready to close the casket on the church and declare the gospel was irrelevant to the needs of the world. But the God who split the Red Sea, the God who raised the dead, the God who called forth us from death to life is still at work in the world today. The culture sees the church not as the solution, but as part of the problem. We know that Christ said, even the face of the world's rejection, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is the opportunity which is ours. This is our great hope. He is not finished with us. He is not finished with you. He's only just begun his work of redemption in the world. Be the agent of healing for your communities. Never forget the amazing work of God through his revelation and his word. God also remind us today Though Nebuchadnezzar heats up his furnace seven times hotter, God has right here in our midst Meshachs and Shadrachs and Abednegoes who will not bow to the idols of this world. That's what we are for. This is what gives us hope, what gives us courage. So, wake up, O church. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Get out of your caskets and into the world. That's why we exist at Asbury. Let us awaken to a great awakening. Thanks be to God.